0: Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus, off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous.
1: Well, good morning. morning. It's good to have you here. And those of you online uh, joining us in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God down south in Haiti. Or, yes, in Haiti that was last service. And, uh, and uh, in Boca Raton and where am I? Belize and anywhere you're from. I don't know. It's good to have you here. Hey, um, we're in this series called Generous, and the whole premise of this series is based on those words from Jesus when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That the pathway to a life of of a, a better life is one of being generous, of giving rather than receiving. And it appears that the entire Seattle Mariners organization has taken this to heart that over the years, we have found it is much better to give away wins than to actually receive them, which has now landed us in a very exclusive club. Many of you are aware of this, that as of this week, the Seattle Mariners are in an exclusive club by themselves, the only team in Major League Baseball, the only one in Major League Baseball, to not have gone to the World Series. So we have that going for us. Yes. It is better to give than to receive. We'll hold on to that. Hey, uh, last week I mentioned this book, The Paradox of Generosity, and in it they basically, in their sociological study, came to conclude that, yeah, Jesus was in fact right. That Generally, you know, people who are more generous find themselves happier, healthier, with a greater sense of purpose in their life, and in in investing our lives in others, we are enhanced, and in giving, we gain. The very words of Jesus, he who wants to save his life will lose it, and, and it's better to give than to receive. In this book, in their studies, their sociological studies, they found a second paradox that they weren't expecting. And it goes this way, it wasn't really even the point of their research, but that generally speaking, again, most people want to be happy, want to be healthy, want to have a sense of purpose in life. And even knowing the sage wisdom of the ages and religious leaders and the sociological findings to back it up, to know that the path, the way to that is that those who are more generous are more happy. Even knowing those things, the paradox is, if this is the result you want and this is the path, that people would still choose to not be generous thereby knowingly deprive themselves of the greater well-being that is available to them. They said it's an absolute paradox that people would know that and still choose not to be generous. And I think that that is seen more clearly in what we'll talk about today, the aspect or the the facet of generosity today, than possibly any other. Uh, Before we get into that, let me tell you something that happened to me last July. Uh, My father-in-law is an absolute redneck. Uh, Some of you know him. He looks like a redneck, he sounds like a redneck, he talks like a redneck, he thinks like a redneck. He drives a redneck pickup truck. He is a redneck, and if he were here, I would say it with even more emphasis. He's a redneck. Anytime I need a pickup, I borrow his redneck pickup truck. Uh, and I appreciate that. Last July, uh, we were preparing for our 4th of July celebration. He owns a little place out on Gooseberry Point. So I was taking some, some supplies out there, and on my way back, I was driving eastbound on Slater Road. Some of you familiar with Watkins County know that eastbound on Slater Road on the 3rd or 4th of July, there is an area there <laughs> where you can buy fireworks that you can't buy here. And it becomes a very busy area, the roads and the people and the fireworks and all of that. And I was coming back in this redneck pickup eastbound on Slater. And as I was coming up to this big congested area, a young man pulled out across Slater going going, uh, westbound right in front of me. And it it was close enough that I could see this was a young guy, late teens, early 20s, getting no doubt his fireworks for the week. He pulls right out in front of me, so much so that I have to hit the brakes really hard. I, I mean, it wasn't like locking them, but I hit the brakes hard enough. Things are going off of my, the front seat. And in a reaction, because of this injustice that has just been done to me, this wrong that has just been done to me, I just wanna blast him, and I know that my only recourse here is to just lay on the horn, which I did. And as he pulled out in front of me, I laid on the horn, not realizing I'm in my father-in-law's redneck truck, and it went, a <laughs> And I thought, that was not the message I wanted to send to this kid. <laughs> but isn't it true when someone does something to us, when they wrong us, when they hurt us, our, our initial response is we want to retaliate, we want to get even, we want to get back, we want retribution, we want justice, we want to let them have it. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Because the area of generosity I want to talk about today has to do with forgiveness. And I don't know if you've ever really thought of in terms of generosity and forgiveness going together, but I think you will see that they very much do. In that book, The The Paradox of Generosity, they define generous this way, the virtue of giving good things to others freely and abundantly. Wow, when you begin to look at generosity as that and think about forgiveness, then you start seeing how these two connect. Now, again, I wanna stop right now because for some of you in your minds, I know, you're saying, well, yeah, but this, this doesn't really apply to me because you don't know what happened to me. You don't know my situation. You can talk about forgiveness and it's great conceptually, but in my situation, my circumstances, the pain that was brought on me, the way it affected my kids, what it did to my grandchildren, what it did to our family, what it did to me financially, what it did to my reputation, I cannot, I will not forgive. And can I just say, you're right, I don't know your circumstance and probably if we had you up here to tell your story, we would all say, you're right, you ought to hold a grudge for the rest of your life. Can we, Can we just put that on hold for a minute? You don't have to apply anything I say today, but can you just at least listen for the next 35 minutes and then make your decision? See, there was a time where Jesus was talking with his disciples. You can find this in Matthew 18. And he was talking about when there was a breakdown in a relationship, when there was a wrong done to somebody, and how to repair that wrong how to restore that relationship, how to bring reconciliation in the midst of these these hurts and these pains and, and the effects that come because of those things. In response to that, one of his disciples speaks up, no doubt on who this might be. Peter, who always speaks up, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, some of you are aware, Peter has a little brother, Andrew. And if any of you have ever had a little brother, this is a great question, because they're brats, and they do the same thing over and over again. And maybe he's talking about his brother Andrew, or maybe he's just speaking hypothetically and saying, when someone messes up this relationship, how generous should I be with my forgiveness? And he's probably thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like swing for the fence. I'm going to say seven And maybe Jesus will say, wow, Peter, you are so generous in your forgiveness. What a great answer. That's amazing. Because later, there was something that was written in the Talmud. Not at that time, Talmud wasn't written there. But it may have been an oral tradition in Jewish circles that later would be written down in the Talmud. And in the Talmud, it would say later, if someone sins against you, if someone wrongs you in the same way, you must forgive them three times. If that's already an oral tradition in the Jewish community, Peter's probably thinking, I just doubled the requirement and added one. This ought to be very generous. And Jesus' response to him, when he says, how many times, up to seven times? And Jesus' response to him was, and then some. What is required? Do that and then some. What is normal? Do that and then some. You know, what is expected? Do that and then some. That's what generosity is. Specifically, he said, no Peter, how about 77 times? I wish we had the time today to go into a a possible reference that Jesus is making to Genesis chapter four, I'll hit it briefly. Genesis chapter four, there's a man named Lamech who's had something done against him, and he says, I will avenge myself 77 times over. And it could be that Jesus is pointing back to this familiar passage from Genesis chapter four to Peter, to saying, I want you to be as committed to and as eager to have forgiveness as Lamech was to get revenge. That's what I want for you. That's what it means to be generous with forgiveness. Now again, let me just say this, pause. Forgiveness, I'm not in any way you know, like diminishing the impact of some of the pain and some of the hurt that's been caused to you, some of the consequences that you still live with, some of the things that may never, ever be restored. I'm not minimizing, that. I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying that at all. I'm not in any way. I'm not in any way saying that that's okay. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be justice done. I'm not saying that. Forgiveness is not to minimize. It's not to say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a big deal. You may never recover from that financially. You may have scars that you take to your grave, that family, your kids, whatever. It was a big deal. I'm not saying it's to just say, well, just don't worry about it. It's not to agree with it, it's not to allow it, it's not to condone it, listen to me. It's not to enable harmful and destructive behavior, attitudes, and relationships. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is releasing. It's releasing, and we'll come back to that at the end of our time together today when we see what does that look like to release. Now today what I want us to do is I want to look at uh, at a life of another individual that's kind of in obscurity a little bit, like we've been doing in this whole series. Uh, if, if you were here the first week, we talked about Tabitha, also known as, Loquiz, also known as? Dorcas, 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 that beautiful gazelle of Joppa. And then the second week, I won't even quiz you on this one, Pastor Kip talked about Mephibosheth, it's a big word, Mephibosheth and David and the grace. And then last week we looked at Joseph, this this Levite from Cyprus, um, who is also known as Barnabas, which means son of, son of encouragement, Parakele, oh, all right, okay, yeah, just still wanna keep saying that. All right, so I want us to look at another individual that's a little bit obscure. You've heard of him, many of you have, but you may not know his whole story. This individual is an absolute, generous example of forgiveness. But we're gonna see that at the end of his story, so it's gonna take us a while to get there. I just wanna set the whole context. His name is Stephen. And the story that, that we're gonna look at is found in Acts chapter six, a little bit in chapter seven, and just a little bit in chapter eight. If you wanna follow along, you can turn in your Bible or your devices to Acts chapter six. Let me set the context. The early church has just started. Jesus has gone back to be with the Father. The Holy Spirit has come on Pentecost. The church is exploding in numbers. This new gathering, this community of people who found grace in Christ and they are, are having this uh, life breathed into them with power and 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 this care and this love and this grace, and 3,000 on one day just, I mean, just grows by 3,000 people. And then every day there's more people joining this. So, with that, there's a lot of difficulties in, in managing and administering and figuring out what does this whole gathering thing look like. One of the beautiful things that actually attracted people to this gathering of Jesus followers is that they took care of one another. You remember last week we saw how Barnabas sold a piece of property and laid the money at the disciples' feet and said, use it how you will. And one of the things that they did was they took care of widows, widows who didn't have a provider, widows who didn't have a protector, widows who were very poor, they took care of them. The other thing was, and I mentioned this last week, there were Hellenistic Jews, Jewish people who were born outside of Israel that spoke Greek, and when they came, they were kind of looked down upon because they didn't speak Aramaic. And there was an issue happening in this early church, that there were some Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. That maybe it was a kind of a, a, a language barrier thing that they, they couldn't communicate well, or maybe it was the ones who were in charge say, you know, I'm gonna help out my grandmother and my mom and these ladies that I know, and, and that those second-class citizens, we're, we'll, you know, we'll see if we get anything to them. It was a problem, and this problem came to the attention of the disciples. And the disciples realized this issue needs to be dealt with, but it would not be good stewardship of our gifts and our calling for us to wait on tables. They're not saying we're above this. we are just saying God has called us to this. This needs to be addressed. So here was the, the uh, answer, the solution. Choose for yourself seven men, not just people who have a pulse, not just people who are willing, seven men who are filled with the spirit and with wisdom, and let them take care of this. Men who will have the gifts of leadership, who have a heart of servanthood, who can administer things and, and can manage this, who can make sure that there's, there's everyone being taken care of. And if I asked you today to list off the names of those seven men, I would guess most of you could only possibly get the name of one, and that's because I already told you his name. The rest of these guys are in obscurity because they're behind the scenes. But it's almost as if the one they were saying, well, we know at least one of them. Almost like this unanimous decision. Absolutely, you've gotta have this guy. So, this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned last week that sometimes when names are listed, there's a significance to that, that maybe the first name may be the one that was in charge or uh, had a greater sense of responsibility. Stephen is not only the first name listed, there's more said about him than any of the other seven. My guess was he was the leader of this group of these seven men, these deacons, to do this work for the body of Christ. Some commentators believe that he was in his late 20s. How they came up with this, I'm not entirely sure, but, but it's generally uh, thought that he was 28, 29 years old, and that he was a Hellenistic Jew, that he spoke Greek, which would make sense if he's supposed to help these Greek widows get their daily allotment as well. And so it's not just that he's waiting tables and passing out bread. God's spirit is upon him, and God uses him to have a massive impact. In verse eight, it says this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So God is using him to really make a difference, and people know who he is, and if he was Hellenistic, if he was a Greek-speaking Jew, then it would make sense that he was also telling other Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem about this Jesus, about the way, about the kingdom of God. And as you may be aware, not everybody was as excited about Jesus in this new kingdom as they were. And so we see this happen, some opposition. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. I don't wanna bore you with all these details. Synagogue of the freedmen, this is the only time you even see this in the Bible, what is this? Most likely, again, People who had been born outside of Israel, into Jewish families, families that had been in slavery in other countries, Greek-speaking people, when they were freed from slavery, they moved back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They speak Greek, they're looked at as second-class citizens, so they say, we will start our own synagogue. That is most likely who these guys are. Members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen knows the word, he knows the Torah, he knows the prophets, and as he goes to tell them about how all the laws and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ, and they're pushing back, he comes back with scripture, he points it out, and they can't hold a candle to his wisdom, and in addition to that, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so his words, he just dominates in these conversations because he has the truth and the spirit behind him. Since they know they can't go toe to toe to him in this mano y mano match, they decide to play dirty. And so this is what they do. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Now, I don't wanna get into any political discussions right now. This is not what I'm getting at at all. But today in our world and on the news, we hear a word a lot, the word is collusion. This is collusion. It's when people secretly scheme for the purpose of harmful effects. They're scheming behind the scenes. They're meeting with some people secretly. They're coaching them what to say, even if it's not true, for a harmful effect. And what they're coaching them and colluding on is to, to say that Stephen was blaspheming. To us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. That's a big church word or whatever. In their context, if you had two witnesses that had would, would confirm witnesses in the court of law that you were a blasphemer. According to Leviticus 24, that was punishable by death by stoning. This was a huge, huge accusation. They're saying, they're, they're lying about Stephen in a way that could actually cost him his life. But they weren't satisfied to just go with these guys. So they stirred up the people, get everybody involved, and the elders, the authorities, and the teachers of the law, those who know all these things, they seized Stephen, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Wow, okay so now you got a few guys over here and they get everybody upset over here and then they take him to the authorities and then they take them to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like this tribunal, it was the Supreme Court of all things Jewishness. I mean, 71 men who were given this, this role and the authority to make ruling on issues in, in Judaism. They bring them him to Stephen. And then look what they say about him. They produce false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. This holy place was the temple. For them, it was where God dwelt. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was and the law, the law was the foundation. These were the words of God that had been given only to Israel, not to others. It it was this picture that that he was their God and they were his people. And these are like these two most important pillars of Judaism, the temple, the dwelling place of God, and the law, his words. And they're saying that Stephen, Stephen is speaking against these things. Continues on. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now it is possible that Stephen, in talking about Jesus, would have quoted Jesus when he said destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But he was talking about his body, the death and resurrection. It is possible that he was quoting Jesus when Jesus said, Oh, I did not come to, to, uh, to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and love. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. And they took that and they twisted it. You begin to see what's happened to Stephen. And I begin to think, what if the similar thing happened to me? What if someone came to hear me preach and didn't like the sermon? I know, I know it happens every week, but so much so that whoever you are decided, we want to get this guy out of here. So you find some people who've never come to Cornwall and you coach them on what to say and you have them start talking about me, saying things that I never said and taking things out of context, and twisting them around to mean things that you know I didn't mean. And then this group of guys, they go, they go viral with it. They, they take it to social media. So now they're posting about it, they're tweeting about it, they got these Instagram, there's, there's memes of me out there and in in, in all this, and in addition to that, the next weekend, they stand out here on the street corner, and as you're coming into the parking lot, they're handing little flyers out. Did you know your pastor said this? Did you know what he stands for? Do you know what Cornwall teaches? Are you aware of these things? And then on top of that, they go to all the pastors of Watkins County and say, you know what, Pastor Bob down at Cornwall Church, you know what he's teaching? And it's all, it's all been twisted around. It's all false accusations. And then they go to the Pacific Northwest Association, which I hold, holds my credentials, and they say, we want to let you know what Bob's doing. If that was going on, defaming my character, twisting my words, putting words in my mouth, you know, making me say things. I, didn't. I mean, I would be so upset. I would be livid. I'd be outraged. My face would get all red and there'd be veins poking out everywhere. <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> Verse 15. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel no veins poking out, no red face, no grimace, no frustration, the face of an angel. I mean, I I read that again in preparing for this sermon. I'm like, I wonder what that was. And then it struck me, of course, this is what he looked like. (laughs) St. Stephen is a precious moment figurine. He's got the face of a wee angel, big teardrop eyes. No, that's not what that means. So, so I began to, re- oh, good. So I, I began to research, what, what does that mean, a face of an angel? And, and some commentators would say it was like maybe his face was radiant. It was brilliant. You know, like when Moses came down off the mountain after meeting with God, he just, he just radiated. Or, or when, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was brighter than, any, whiter than anything you could ever bleach. Or the angel at the empty tomb that was, it was just shining. Maybe he had this, this glory, this Shekinah glory was just radiating off of him. Maybe, another commentator said, no, no, no. Maybe it was that he had this this sense of serenity and calmness and confidence. That it's like his face reflected the fruit of the spirit with all of this lies and and collusion and all the possibly facing death that, that there was just this love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and and gentleness, and self-control. That he was just with the face of an angel. And then the highest authority in all of Judaism says this. The high priest asked him, are these charges true? Now again, if I'm in that situation, emphatically not. No way, they weren't even at church. They've twisted my words. You can find some other people. That I'd never said that, and if I said that, that's not what I meant, and they know that. I would go off, and I'd be defending my words. I'd be defending my character. I'd be defending my reputation. I'd be defending the whole thing. Not Stephen. He's got the face of an angel. <laughs> Stephen recognizes, I have 71 of the most powerful men in all of Israel right in front of me. I have the teachers of the law, I have the elders, and I have who knows how many hundreds of other men, and they're all looking at me. I can defend myself, but this is a captive audience. What better place to preach than right here? And we won't go into it on your own. Read chapter seven. In chapter 7, Stephen gives the most concise, detailed history of Israel, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and Joseph and Egypt and the slavery and the wilderness and the prophets and the promised land. And he spends an inordinate amount of time talking about the law of Moses, which he's being accused of speaking against. And at the end, he begins to talk about the tabernacle and the dwelling place of God and where it was in the wilderness and how they brought it into the promised land and how there it stayed until David comes and then Solomon builds a temple the very thing they say he's preaching against. And he ends on this thing of this this blessed temple, and he says, however, however, the most high does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, and he knows with this crowd that he's talking to, he quotes the prophet, they're not gonna push back, especially the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. (laughs) What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Guys, have you forgotten how great Yahweh is? You think, really, that he's contained in a little gold box up on the hill? You really think God is limited to that thing we call the temple? You think that's what God is all about? Let me remind you what he said through the prophet Isaiah. He is far greater than that temple. And then something happens where Stephen takes on the role of a prophet. And I think his words, while strong, are not a fine. You wanna say that about me? Let me say a couple things to you. I think his words are inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, words they desperately need to hear. And he comes at them and he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That just sounds weird to us. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I'm cutting off my ear. I mean, he said, no, no, no. He says, the circumcision was the sign of the covenant. He says, you cut your foreskins off, but your hearts are hardened and your ears are stopped up. You can't hear anything. You can't feel anything. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. I mean, he's just laid out their history. And he says, and you're no different. And then he says one final thing, he says, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. As you can imagine, this didn't go real well. They were furious, livid. They were gnashing their teeth. They were outraged. And in that moment, Stephen has a vision. Stephen looks up and he's, it's like, it's like the veil of this reality is torn and he gets a glimpse into eternity. I don't know, I've heard of people that are on their deathbed and, and like they'll look up in the corner and they'll say, ah, oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, you've heard about these things, Where, where it's like God gives them a glimpse of the, of the, of the next life that they're going to. It's like Stephen has one of these moments where he looks up and he sees, he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God and he tells him, look, I see Jesus and they can't handle it anymore, what he's saying. And this is their response to him. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city because you couldn't do this inside the city, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. After all of that, and here's this man who is full of the Holy Spirit, who's been serving the kingdom, who's been telling the good news of Jesus, and now they drag him out of the city to stone him, to execute him. I grew up in church like many of you. I heard about Stephen getting stoned, the stoning of Stephen, and I never really thought about it until, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I thought about the reality of what would it be like to be on the ground surrounded by men with big rocks? What would it be like? The bruises and the lacerations, the crushed fingers, the broken ribs, the shattered jaw, the teeth falling out, the nose bleeding. What would it be like to have all this blunt force trauma from these rocks pounding over you again and again and again, praying, praying to slip into unconsciousness? and not relenting until the last breath is drawn. See, when you look at this story of Stephen, you look at his life and you put together Stephen's list, you put together this list of every reason why he should not forgive every reason why he should want to get back, every reason why he should want to have an outburst and and to get even, every reason that he should not have to forgive. I mean, look at this list. Opposition, collusion, conspiracy, fabrication, vilification, deception and lies, defamation and slander, character assassination, arrest, and then he's sentenced to an execution. You look at this list, I think most of us would say, Stephen's justified. He's justified in saying, I'm not going to forgive them. This one doesn't apply to me in my situation. Look at the list. It's just too much. They don't deserve to be forgiven. They're not even asking to be forgiven. They're, they're not even groveling. No way. You, you know, there's um, another little detail that we overlooked in this story some of you are aware of. Something else that's happening. Because when they take him out to stone him, it says, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul this young up-and-coming Pharisee is standing there observing this whole thing, watching it, witnessing, hearing everything that's happening. And people are laying their coats at Saul's feet. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. I mentioned this last week, um, the diaspora, this persecution that sent everybody fleeing because that started on that day, a powder keg was lit And Paul decides he's gonna be on the front end of this whole thing. And it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. That's a secondary story that's happening. And he hears and he sees and he's watching everything that's going on with this man, Stephen. Now, we left Stephen when he's being dragged outside of the city to be stoned. And we don't know when Stephen became a part of the following group, the the group who follows Jesus. We don't know if maybe, like we don't know with Barnabas, maybe he was one of the original, that when Jesus was walking, he was there. Maybe he heard the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was one of the the followers from the very beginning. Or maybe he became a follower at the day of Pentecost, or or added to after that, We, we don't know. Maybe, maybe he had just heard about Jesus on the cross. Or maybe he was there. Maybe he was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was a disciple that was observing it. Or maybe he was a part of the crowd that screamed, crucify him, crucify him, and he was there at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus. Either way, I think he's very aware of Jesus and his crucifixion. Because as they're stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Could it be that he remembers being at the foot of the cross and hearing this man Jesus cry out, God, into your hands I commit my spirit, as he's quoting Psalm 31, verse five. And could that have made such an impression in his mind that when he is wrongfully being executed, he follows the example of his Lord Jesus Christ who entrusted himself into the hands of his father. And now he says, I entrust myself into the hands of my savior. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Could it be that he remembers his Lord and savior hanging on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And he follows suit with his unbelievable, generous forgiveness. Forgiveness they didn't deserve. Forgiveness they didn't even ask for. He generously forgives them. It's an amazing story. It's a story that goes counter to everything humanly that makes sense. Counter to our culture and the norms of society. And maybe it was because he was a man filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's transformation and power in his life. It's it's a fabulous story, but don't miss the secondary story, the collateral impact that happens from this. As he's being stoned, as he's breathing out these words of, of, I commit my spirit into your hands, Jesus. Don't Don't hold this against them. Forgive them. Saul is taking all of this in, and he becomes the persecutor of the church. Fast forward 15 years later, Saul has now become an evangelist, making an impact for the kingdom, and it's like deja vu all over again. There's almost like this exact parallel story. Same city, same temple, same people, same issues, only this time it's with Paul. You can read this on your own, Acts chapter 21. Paul is at the temple. Some people stir up the crowd, just like they did. They drag him out of the city, just like they did. They accuse him of speaking against the temple and the law, just like they did. They're preparing to kill him, and Saul says, wait, 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 let me address the crowd, just like Stephen did, and, and Paul, takes this opportunity to tell his story of how Jesus transformed his life, of how he was just like them and he was a Pharisee and yet Christ changed his life. And at the end of his story, you see that there's a moment in his story that he never ever forgot. Made such an impression on him when he says this, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who are killing him. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget his words. I'll never forget his forgiveness and his trust in Jesus. So you fast forward again another five years following that and Paul writes these letters, the one that we studied this summer, to the church in Ephesus. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Not forgiving each other when they deserve it, when they ask for it, when they grovel. No, just as Christ, he wrote the same, very similar to to Colossians. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Commensurate with the way that Jesus has forgiven you. In the same way that Jesus has forgiven you. Here's an interesting thing. Jesus turns this around in the Lord's Prayer. And we have prayed this our whole life, maybe not realizing what we're praying. Because Jesus said, pray this way, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you realize what you're praying there? Hey Jesus, here's how I want you to forgive me, the same way I forgive everybody else. Uh oh. No, no, no. He says, that probably wouldn't work out very well for you. How about this? How about in the generous way that I have forgiven you, that you would forgive others that way? see, the weightiest conjunction there is that two little letter word, as. In the same way, as. And we who have been forgiven much, forgiven when we don't deserve it, he says now, you forgive that way. I don't know if it's possible for me to preach on forgiveness without saying two of my favorite quotes outside the Bible about forgiveness. Uh, I think probably every time I preach on forgiveness, you've seen these quotes because they're that good. Uh, one is by Frederick Buechner, and he says this, of all the deadly sins, resentment appears to be the most fun. To lick your wounds and savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king, but then it turns out that what you're eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart. And the skeleton, the carcass of the feast is you. You start out holding a grudge, but in the end, the grudge holds you. Lewis Smeads, in his profound uh, book on forgiveness said this, the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. That's forgiveness, that's releasing so that I don't have to be handcuffed to that person who hurt me for the rest of my life. When I forgive, I'm not condoning, I'm not enabling, I'm not saying it was okay, I'm saying, I am not gonna allow that to ruin the rest of my life. Now listen, I could preach on and on and on about forgiveness. I could go on and on in this sermon. But two and a half weeks ago, there was a two minute sermon that was preached that is about as profound as anything I've heard in a long time on what we've just studied. It was when Brant Jean had the opportunity to talk as a victim of the victim impact to the woman who had just been sentenced for killing his brother.
2: Watch these two minutes. I can speak for myself, I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. and i don't think anyone could say it again i'm speaking for myself not even bad for my family but i love you just like anyone else and i'm not going to say i hope you rot and die just like my brother did but i see i i personally want the best for you Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) Generous forgiveness. It's powerful, it's powerful. And Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when we apply that to forgiveness to those who have wronged us, you realize that the greatest beneficiary is the benefactor so we're the ones that get freed. Last night after service, a man came up to me. He, he hated and would not speak to his brother-in-law for five years because of a business deal. And he said, a couple years ago, I just said, I've got to forgive him. And he said, you cannot imagine the weight that was lifted off of my shoulders, how much I had been carrying around for those years. Paul says in Colossians, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive, commensurate with. In the same way, like how you've been forgiven, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I wonder if today there's some grudges that need to be released. There's some some resentment that you just need to let go. You need to forgive. It doesn't... It doesn't condone what they did, doesn't say it was all right. But to free yourself up, why would you live in this second paradox? Knowing from the words of our Lord and Savior, the example of Jesus, the example of Brent, that in forgiving we find life, and yet choosing not to forgive knowingly depriving ourselves from a greater well-being that's available to us. Don't be the second paradox. And what if? What if in the power of the Holy Spirit we began to live in a supernatural way like this to forgive generously? Jesus, we acknowledge this is like the hardest thing and it goes against everything inside us And it goes against everything we're told and every example we've had modeled for us. But may we be truly generous in forgiveness. May we be more like Brant. May we be more like Stephen. May we be more like Jesus. That we would be set free and your kingdom would come to bear on this earth. We pray it in your name, amen.